This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The primary election this week revealed which two major party candidates will compete to become Colorado's next governor. Yesterday, we heard from Democrat Jared Polis fresh off his victory. Now we welcome the Republican nominee, Walker Stapleton. He's currently state treasurer. Stapleton joined me by phone from what the state GOP calls a Republican unity tour. Walker Stapleton, thank you for being with us. Good to be with you, Ryan. What would you like to accomplish, let's say, in your first 100 days as governor? Well, I think priority one and 1A would be fixing our infrastructure for the long term, not just incrementally as we've done so the last two years, but really for the economic future of Colorado, we have to find an infrastructure solution for the next decade plus. And I'd say 1A would be affordable housing because Affordable housing for a young person moving to Colorado and to the metro area specifically uh, is an indispensable part of economic development for the future of this state. And right now, if you're a millennial and you're moving here and you're being asked to pluck down $75,000 on average for your first down payment for a house, that makes it unaffordable for most young people. And if you can't afford to buy a house, uh, you're paying nearly 50% of your take-home in rent. And that is unaffordable and unsustainable for the economic future of Colorado. We've talked about transportation in past conversations. There are any number of ways to achieve uh, spending on that through bonding. Of course, there uh, is likely to be a measure on the ballot, uh, perhaps raising taxes for that. What, What power, though, does a governor have in the affordable housing arena? Well, I think a governor has the power of pointing out that the reason that we haven't fixed this has been state government's inability to fix construction defects uh, uh, litigation. And construction defects litigation, particularly for the trial lawyers who've made tens of millions of dollars on construction defects lawsuits in Colorado, is a reason we don't have the supply that we need of residential housing in in the metro area. This is ultimately a supply and demand problem. You know, Ryan, before I ever ran for treasurer, I ran a publicly traded real estate company. So I have some experience in the real estate world. And I can tell you that there has been a chill of residential development because if you're building a big condo project, chances are there might be a wire that's misplaced in a bathroom. And unless we actually have a right to cure for developers over a 90 or 120-day period, we are not going to get the supply of housing we need to solve what is fastly becoming a crisis in Colorado of affordable housing. Of course, I'm sure there are some who would say it's much more serious than just a misplaced wire. Perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but uh, the fact of the matter is we need to have a right to cure for developers. I want to ask you about something your opponent in this race, Democrat Jared Paulus, has said, basically that you are beholden to President Trump. Uh, You're running in a state that went for the Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. And I'm wondering, where where do you differ from the president? Well, first of all, I find that assertion laughable because I've said I will be a strong supporter of supporting the president when he makes life better for Coloradans. And I'll stand up to the administration when they don't. This is more a Tenth Amendment issue. An election for governor should be a a referendum on our Tenth Amendment, which is electing a strong chief executive at the state level. Tenth Amendment, meaning states' rights. uh, To solve our problems with Medicaid expansion, to solve our infrastructure needs. Washington is not going to solve any of those challenges that Colorado is facing, but a strong executive in the governor's uh, house will. Where do you differ from the president? 
Uh, um, I am concerned about the president's policies on tariffs, particularly with respect to China, because we have uh, more than a billion, about $1.2 billion of, of ag exports going to China right now. Uh, close to about 650 million of those are meat exports. And if we get in an escalating trade war with China uh, that starts slapping tariffs on meat exports, it will have a very negative impact uh, on our ag industry. And I am also concerned about the J-1 visa program, uh, which is a temporary visa program for students in uh, predominantly South American countries uh, who are coming to the United States for a period of three months and the ski industry in particular, which uh, is responsible for $5 billion of economic impact and 50,000 jobs, is very reliant on the J-1 visa program. Let's take a look back at the primary race. You defeated Vic Mitchell, Greg Lopez, and Doug Robinson handily, getting almost 48% of the vote. Uh, there was criticism of your campaign, ranging from not participating in some of the debates uh, to a television ad uh, with a claim that was proven false. Uh, you said you were the only state treasurer in the country to support the president's tax cuts. Uh, some of the criticisms of, of the campaign thus far have actually come from your own party. Former state GOP chairman Dick Wadhams said this to us this week. If Walker is going to win this general election, he has got to have a much sharper and more disciplined campaign. What's your reaction? Well, look, I think I have a demonstrated track record of winning swing counties that a Republican needs to win in order to win this state, in order to get the support independents and pragmatic Democrats and everybody else involved uh, in our campaign under a big tent. And what happens during a political campaign, particularly a statewide race, is you end up becoming a human pinata uh, from all sides. And we were taking incoming fire from uh, all sides, which I think is a a mark that you're actually uh, gaining ground in this business, (laughs) which is kind of the craziness of a political campaign. But um, we run this race on my record as Treasurer Colorado on stopping the largest tax increase in Colorado history, Amendment 66, because the money wasn't going to end up in our kids' classrooms where it belonged, partnering with Bill Ritter, former Democratic governor, to defeat a Bernie Sanders-style single-payer health care system that Jude Polis is a full-throated supporter of, and being the largest voice for fixing our pension system, which for years and during my time as treasurer was the biggest debt that we had in state government. And that is what uh, is going to ultimately determine whether I get elected governor of Colorado, not all this background noise. Is that your message for unaffiliated voters in particular, to swing them? Absolutely. We are going to have an inclusive message of economic opportunity for Republicans, Democrats, and independents, that Colorado can be the state where they can all prosper and we can prosper. And one of the things that I've always said is that I'm running for governor for three important reasons. My children, I've got a 10-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 4-year-old, but not just my kid, every child in Colorado, and the economic opportunities I want to have in abundance for the future of this state. I want to ask you a question we asked of Jared Polis. Uh, What is a strength that Jared Polis brings to the race? And we obviously asked him what you bring to the race. Well, I think he's he's made a lot of money in his business career for himself, which has allowed him to spend uh, an unprecedented amount of money just to win a a contested race on the Democratic side and get 46% of the Democratic vote, uh, he spent four and a half times what we spent, and we got a higher proportion of the Republican vote on our side than he got on his side of the aisle. And so uh, he literally is trying to buy this race, and I think that most Coloradans will find that to be particularly unseemly. Walker, thank you for being with us, and we look forward to talking to you. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate you.
Walker Stapleton this week won the Republican nomination for governor of Colorado. You can hear our conversation with the winner on the Democratic side, Jared Polis, at CPR.org. One clarification, Stapleton said his record as treasurer includes stopping a large tax hike for education. Ultimately, of course, it was Colorado voters who did that. We've been conducting a civic experiment for over a year now with a group of Coloradans who have very different politics. Reaching across the political divide is something the country struggles with. The growing political polarization in America is hard to ignore. Let's get down to the root cause of why we've become so divided and what the solution is. A new president and a deeply divided country. Today, our series Breaking Bread takes us to Sandy Russell's house in Palmer Lake, The town of 2600 is tucked into the mountains, and likewise, her house feels tucked into its bucolic surroundings. How long have you lived here? Uh, We're starting our 14th year. Longest I've ever lived at the same place in 50 years. I'm an army issue bride of 50 years. Sandy's at the porch, and you can tell she has a green thumb. Plants are everywhere. Over the years, she and her husband have added on to the place. With a glass of wine in her hand, she welcomes Adam Brock, who's just driven an hour from his home in Westminster near Denver. Cheers! (laughs) Welcome to the little brown house that grew. Yeah, this is lovely. Did you add on this part? Adam and Sandy met at our first Breaking Bread, just after the election of Donald Trump. Sandy's a Trump supporter. Adam voted for Hillary Clinton. We brought the two together to see if they could talk through some of their differences. Adam's a community activist deeply concerned about climate change. Among other things, he helped start an urban garden in Denver where he teaches people to grow their own food. Sandy has voiced skepticism about climate change. She has a deep connection to the military, and he is basically a peacenik. This is my husband's war room. And what do you mean by that? I mean all of his junk that came from retirement and from his... Uh, involvement with 10th Mountain Division, Scottish American Military Society, and all of the volunteer work he does now is in here. The room is filled with photographs. There's a sword on the wall. Sandy's husband and their three children have all served in the military. Sandy herself, now a counselor, spent more than two decades working for the Defense Department. Adam says his knowledge of the military is limited. My grandfather was in World War II. Hmm. That's about all I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have much exposure, say, day to day? No, none at all. We head into the dining room to break bread. Sandy has made a special stew. It's a favorite in Scotland, where her family comes from. I've just given the Dundee stew a try. It's really good, and I... I think you put more than a little wine in it, Sandy. You think? I think so. I followed the recipe. <laughs> I mean, you don't have any way to mm, go, do it's you? It's delicious. Anything to do? Oh, wow. <laughs> that is good. I don't even taste the wine. Really? <laughs> As we ate, we wanted to focus on two issues near and dear to Sandy and Adam's hearts. For Sandy, the military. For Adam, climate change, even how they intersect. Ahead of our gathering, we sent them a few articles to read. One about how more and more the military sees climate change as a national security threat. But I started out asking them more generally what they think of the country right now. 
I feel very comfortable, and uh, I feel that we have people in leadership positions that know both sides. I feel like there's something new every day where I want to like shake my head and feel like every time I think it can't get worse, it does. For many of us, that might be where the conversation stops, both sides rolling their eyes and walking away or getting angry. But that's not what this experiment's about. So I press ahead and ask Sandy what she thinks about the decision by President Trump and Congress to boost military spending. That takes you back to George Washington. And George Washington said, in order to have peace, you must always be prepared for war. The phrase actually comes from a Roman general, though Washington apparently embraced it. So though we have all these people that are really dedicated to uh, saving our planet from global warming or uh, all of these issues that I think they're real issues, we don't know how far out you know, these things are going to happen. But let's make sure that we are always prepared to protect our country because then we are more likely to have peace. I asked Adam for his view of increased military spending. I think because it's not something that is on the top of my mind all the time, I don't think I've thought enough about defense spending and the appropriate level to have a really clear idea. I mean, I think the default liberal position is that we need less of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I understand how that in some ways can be naive. Let's go back to the global warming, Sandy, just uh, you having raised it. What's your what's your thinking about that? I mean, I, I remember the first time we talked about it around the breaking bread table. You um, made some references to the Bible and maybe mm-hmm. th- this was all part of God's plan, I think. I don't mm-hmm. want to put words in your mouth, but where is your head these days on the issue of climate change? I think I have the right to say, well, there's nothing we can do to stop this planet from being taken away just as the biblical teachings that I have been taught and that I embrace. I'm also taught I must be a good steward. So I think that opinion ought to be granted to me just as much as an opinion that I can't believe you really believe that. You know, science has proven, and there's things that we can do. We can save this planet. If we plant trees and if we do this and if we do all this research, we can save this planet. And my view is, well, let's see. Let's be good stewards. Let's do everything we possibly can while we have this planet It is something that was ingrained in me in my home because you always took care of your environment. What does that mean to you? To me, that means that I don't throw trash out foolishly. For me, that that falls into the idea of like being less bad, like causing less harm and trying to mitigate the harm you're you're making. And and a lot of what I feel like is really Important and valuable and necessary is actively restoring and regenerating the things that have already been poisoned by our past mistakes or not paying attention or things like that. And I feel like the military could be, and in some cases has been, a really good force for that. You know, I think of the, um, the Army Corps of Engineers um, that, you know, have built all kinds of earthworks and amazing works of engineering across the country. Mm-hmm. And part of me feels like, If we're going to expand the military and increase defense spending, I would love to see some of that money go to people who are 
on reserve, you know, planting trees in areas that are deforested or doing things to restore uh, wetlands. As long as they're not actively on duty at war, maybe they can use some of that other time to make our environment better and to actively restore it and improve it rather than just be less bad. So where do you think their priority needs to be to protect our country from possible aggressive attacks or to have their uniform folks who are trained to you know, protect your country in uh, battlefields and in and, and those areas. I think the military is quite overtaxed and overworked and overdeployed. I mean, I think of your own daughter. How many times has she been this deployed? This is her fifth. Fifth deployment. And she has four girls. Sandy, speaking of those multiple deployments, you know, it's been... 20-some-odd years with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Are, are we better off, do you think? Well, we haven't had another 9-11. Something's working. What do you think, Adam? I feel definitely out of my league in terms of analysis of these things. I know, in particular, the Middle East is such a complicated region. But from what I have read, and from the people who are a lot more thoughtful than me about this stuff, it seems like there are ways we could have eliminated the threat of domestic terrorism at far less cost in terms of dollars and uh, human lives, both American lives and you know Iraqi and Afghani lives. What do you base that on? Um, like I'm saying, I, I base it on a lot of the articles and books and, and news stories I've read about okay. foreign policy, which all come from the left. In our first Breaking Bread gatherings, the larger group focused a lot on the bubbles they live in, that we don't spend time with people we disagree with and really never get a chance to understand other viewpoints. Sandy brought up the bubble idea again. The reason I thought it would be helpful for us to have this conversation Mm -hmm. is that you are in a bubble. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly in a bubble. And I'm sitting here appalled that you have such limited actual grounds, knowledge about the military. Mm -hmm. And perhaps you're appalled that she doesn't have the compassion and the understanding for the, the, we must save our environment and we must do this and we must do that. So what came to mind when I was sitting there reading those articles was a visit that I had to Jerusalem. And we got on the bus, public transport in uh, Israel. And, uh, I couldn't believe it. I looked around and I said, oh my gosh, there's 18, 19-year-olds sitting around in uniform and they have weapons. I think the draft would take care of the bubble. If everyone had skin in the game and everyone understand just the basics, Adam and I are truly in those bubbles. Because perhaps this is the Venn diagram right mm-hmm. now. This is the first time that you've mm-hmm. really come into a home where, oh my goodness, everyone here is military. Is this the first time you've come into a... Uh, the first time that I can remember, yeah. No. What's wrong with the bubble? Well, I mean, I think it prevents us from understanding all sides of the picture. It keeps us in the dark about realities that are necessary mm-hmm. to make our society work the way it does and work as smoothly as it does, and therefore it kind of distorts our perspectives and opinions about what should be prioritized. 
part of why I wanted to drive all the way down here is because, like I said, I'd never been in a home like this. I haven't had much conversation with people in military families, so there's a lot that I want to learn. Why is military service, in your mind, Sandy, the, the unifier? In other words, you think that if, if all young people had to serve in the military, that would get people out of their bubbles. Mm-hmm. Why is that the vehicle in your mind? It, we just have uh, more understanding of what the military is about. I can only imagine Adam's reaction if he were to be at basic training. And you would just have a better understanding because they would have experienced it hands-on. Isn't that true of any field? Adam, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think I'm starting to see where you're coming from. That I, There is something unique, probably, about the military in terms of it instilling a sense of discipline and respect that many people, especially young people, never get. You know, especially if, you know, they go to a liberal arts college or mm-hmm. end up, you know, starting their own business. Mm-hmm. They've never been in situations where they need to be coordinated with large groups of people or, or mm-hmm. some small part of a much bigger thing and need mm-hmm. to kind of play by a certain set of rules. And honestly, I think some of that is on purpose. I think one of the kind of big differences from what I understand of the different values between liberals and conservatives is respect and obedience and discipline are considered really important from the conservative ideology, whereas for myself growing up and all the people I was around with, it was about individualism and independence and Mm -hmm. finding your own way. And I think there is a middle ground. And I hear what you're saying, that I think everybody having some of that time to be as part of a larger institution Mm -hmm. and to follow those rules, I think that discipline is good and and healthy. Um, I don't know whether it has to be in the context of being in the armed forces. You could be building trails together. I don't know. Right, right. Also among the articles we asked Sandy and Adam to read was one about a military parade, the idea President Trump has floated to show appreciation for those who serve. I asked them what they thought. Well, you would do that because you are showing pride and support of your country and the people who are doing all that they do to protect you, to protect our freedom, to protect our country. Adam, what do you think of the idea of a formal military parade? Um, I mean, I'd say mostly I'm indifferent to it. It feels kind of frivolous to argue about. I mean, I think it's a symbolic gesture, and I agree with you about what it's symbolizing. Mm -hmm. And I guess the difference is that I'm not as comfortable symbolizing that. Um, and, and it actually kind of gets to kind of flipping what you were saying about different worldviews and being in bubbles, because I, I feel like a, almost a precondition of being uh, in the military and, and serving our country is a belief that we ought to be proud of our country and respect it and do whatever we can to defend it. Um, and that in itself, I think, can become a blind spot. Because I think from my perspective and and the world that I live in, I think being able to be critical of our country, not not just the politics, um, so I'm not just talking about Trump, but, well, maybe America isn't the greatest country on earth. Maybe there are a lot of mistakes that we've made in the past that have never healed. Even just the fact that uh, this, this beautiful place that we're living on today, we're living on because we broke treaties to Native Americans. And so, you know, for me... When I think about the culture of the armed forces, that feels like the bubble that they're in. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that, Sandy? The idea that just as patriotism can be important, so can being critical of one's government, the way one's country is progressing. What do you think? Absolutely. We have that right to be critical of our country. I'd like to go into the history of our country and say what really bothers me is all of these terrible things that happened in the development of our country, and not only our country. We're only, we're not even 300 years mm-hmm. yet. But in all countries, these uh, horrible things that have happened and the deaths, it happened. It's history. I do not believe in revisionist history. I do not believe that there's going to be any positive change to rewrite history, uh, uh, tear down statues, uh, take away uh, symbolism of bad things that happened in the development of our country. Am I hearing That's your history. reference to confederacy and, and maybe confederate statues? Confederacy, uh, whatever. That's history. And I would think that it would be more positive to see that and study it and weep tears over it rather than tear it down and now march on. In the particular case of the statues, and and I think there's some statues that are worth keeping up, and I think a lot of them are worth having around in some place, maybe at a museum where people can learn about that past. Agree, yeah. But for to have a statue, say, like in a, in a public square, implies that that's history that you're proud of. And I think that's what is and ought to be up for debate. Are we proud of the legacy of the Civil War in the South? Are we proud of, in Denver, for example, naming an airport and a, um, and a neighborhood after a mayor who had close ties with the Ku Klux Klan? So I don't think history should be erased, but I think it's always open to reinterpretation, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, because I think that the histories we tell in the history books are generally the histories of the small percentage of people who gained power. And we don't necessarily hear the histories of the people who have suffered because of that. And sometimes those histories need to be told in order for us to all understand how we got to where we are. I gotta say, I'm impressed by how these two stick with it, despite some really awkward moments. I mean, just a bit ago, Sandy said she was appalled by Adam's ignorance of the military. And ignorance Adam acknowledged but he suggests there are parts of civilian life that Sandy might not be aware of, in which, like the military, people are devoted to a cause and willing to sacrifice. I feel really lucky and proud to be part of kind of a very specific part of civilian life that maybe doesn't get a lot of attention in the mainstream media um, that you might not know about. People who are really active in supporting their communities, in making a difference in their own neighborhood, who are running for local office, who are um, growing food and sharing it with their neighbors and friends. And it has a very unique worldview from both the military and what you might see like in the mainstream liberal media. I don't think it's like either of those things. And it's a story that I don't think is told much. Um, But when you're part of that story, um, it feels really fulfilling and feels like a very whole worldview. And it feels, I almost want to say it feels like healing. And it heals a lot of the the kind of isolation and conflict that I feel like I've grown up with my whole life that I didn't even know was around me until I found people like that. What would you want to show, Sandy? 
I think I would love to show Sandy, well, the Grow House, the, the organization that I helped start in Northeast Denver, I think is a good example of that, where people of many different ages and cultures and backgrounds and races come together to learn and to literally grow things, but also to grow community. Sounds like there might be food there. I wonder, I wonder if we, there yeah. might be bread to break there. When you speak grow house, yeah. that could be a It's not a fort. cannabis grow house. <laughs> <laughs> no, everybody thinks that. Um, and it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> the grow house is a nonprofit that I helped start. And the Wild Green Yonder is my own business. And both of them are about teaching people how to grow food, how to restore natural systems. You know what my next question is going to be, Sandy? What do you think of a field trip? I would love a field trip. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, I'd would love be, to show you around. That would be great. Because what I'm getting, the commonality, military, Adam, media, is... I like that you point at me and say all, media. <laughs> <laughs> we all want to make a difference. Mm. And we mm-hmm. want to make a difference for the greater of the whole rather than just individually. What I really find interesting is from my growing up, we grew tobacco. Mm -hmm. We did all that stuff that you're doing. It was our livelihood. Right. But I'm really interested who in this 21st century Mm -hmm. does not know how to grow something. You see my little garden out there? I was looking at your little garden out there. I'm, you know. But a lot of people don't. Most people who live in cities larger than 10,000 people don't know how to grow anything because they don't have to. It strikes me that fundamental to both of your lives is the idea of seeking a broader community. I mean, the military is that in many ways, yeah. and that's, that's what you're trying to create in Denver too, Adam. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the military, from what I can understand and learn, provides a sense of belonging. It makes you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. And mm-hmm. I think when you're not in the military, a lot of time it, it's easy to feel lost. Mm-hmm. And that, like, we're just floating in this big ocean of society and we don't have a place to land and we feel overwhelmed. So I think a lot of people are yearning for that sense of, I want to be part of something larger than myself. And I feel fortunate that I've found that for myself, but I see a lot of people that are still kind of drifting. Mm-hmm. And yet this could sound so pat, right? Okay, so you both believe in community. You both <laughs> like f- having friends and family and yet it expresses itself in you so different politically. Yeah. Well, and I think we're in a moment where we haven't experienced much in the past where our political beliefs are a much bigger shaper of our identities than they used to be. Where I proudly identify as a liberal and all of my friends are liberals and that's the only you know, bubble that I'm in. And I don't think that's always been the case. And so I think those similarities that Sandy and I shared never have the chance to, we we never have the chance to uncover them because we've so separated ourselves. But there's liberals who I'm around every day who probably have a lot of values that aren't shared by me or Sandy, that that me and Sandy have more in common than I do with them, and that I'd rather eat a meal with you than than with them because they're jerks or, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's there's a tendency to think that the moment we're in is always the most politically intractable. And what we know, of course, in the history of this country is that there have been fights for the soul of it. But I wonder what you make of that idea, Sandy, that people's political identification 
speaks too strongly these days, that that's too much of their identity, and that it, it has a way of obfuscating what might be our similarities. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. And I gave thought to that. Um, what are the barriers between Trump supporters and Barack Obama supporters? And, you know, he's no longer in office. And uh, I really attempted to suss that out, and I was like, it doesn't appear that we're given a middle-of-the-road opinion. We're either going to be left or we're going to be right. And I'm not all right. And I'm not all left. Sandy Russell of Palmer Lake, along with Adam Brock of Westminster. The two sat down for a meal at Sandy's house to talk about their political differences and similarities, part of our series Breaking Bread. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. How do you grow more raspberries, battle beetles, and get the dirt on dirt? Ask a Colorado master gardener, and we have one with us today. Lonnie Godet of Berthoud is here to answer some of your questions uh, submitted over the last few weeks, and some of ours as well. Hi, Lonnie. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. First, I'm wondering about your own garden. What maybe veggies are you excited to be growing this year? Oh, I've got a few that I'm really excited about. The first one is a winter squash. It is called sweet meat, and it is a type of Hubbard squash. So it's rather large. It's delicious. It's got a nice firm texture, makes great pies and soups, and just roasted. It's fabulous. Okay, so those are already planted. They are planted. They're a warm season vegetable, so they have not started setting fruit yet, but I'm hoping any day. And you've tasted them before. Oh, yes. I've grown them. This is my third year to grow them. I like them that much. What else? There is a green bean. It's a little bush green bean, and its name is Denver, which I think is really appropriate. And the nice thing about the Denver green bean is is that the beans stay rather slender, and they don't get too long, even if you've left them on the bush a little bit longer than you should. So picking them doesn't feel as frantic as it can with other varieties. I have to say, eating a fresh bean, string bean, is like one of the best experiences. Right off the bush in the garden. It's fabulous. How soon will you be able to do that with the Denver? Hopefully in the next three weeks. Okay. We're just now getting large enough plants to start flowering. Uh, coincidence that it's called Denver? What's that story? Any idea? I really do not know. I picked it partially because the name was Denver, though. Okay. Uh, and you, But you haven't tasted it yet? Oh, yes. Again, this is several years that okay. I planted the same green bean. <laughs> I, I want to talk a bit about dirt. Uh, listener Mitch Killian of Denver heard that soil testing is an important first step to starting a garden. And so he wants to know where and how to get his soil tested? Sure. I'll say even that question is a level of sophistication that is beyond me as a gardener. Well, soil testing tells us a lot about our gardens and it helps us to be more successful. It tells us about the texture of our soil, whether or not it can hold moisture or if it's going to dry out really fast. It'll tell us about the pH of our soil, which in Colorado is typically pretty alkaline. 
And it'll also tell us about what nutrients our soil has so that we know what our plants might need to grow. Okay, so you think this is an important step? It's critical. It really is. Because if you don't know what's in your soil, how do you know what fertilizer you need or how to amend your soil to make it have a better texture? So I actually have over-amended soil several times because I was remiss and did not get a soil test. So I've had a couple of years where in areas of my garden I over-amended. People don't think it's a thing, but it is. Ended up with too high of a nitrogen content and ended up with no vegetables, just a lot of leaves. I see. So it really is important. Where do I turn to have my soil tested? The CSU Soil Testing Lab is one of the great... um, like services of services, extension. yes, thank you. Yeah. That we have in our state, and you can mail in your soil test to them, which is great. And okay. they will mail or email you back the results. Do they send you a vial or something? You can even use a plastic baggie. But the instructions are all on the CSU Soil Testing website. So you can just Google CSU Soil Testing Lab. You can get the instructions, and you can send it in. You'll have all the information there. A lot of the local County Extension agents or their offices will also have soil test kits with the instructions printed out so you can contact your local county. Do they need a lot of earth to be able to do this? It's not so much that they need a lot of earth, but you want what's called a representative sample, one that represents your entire bed. So for my vegetable bed, for instance, I would take a scoop of dirt from several different parts in the bed, mix it all in a bucket, and then take a sample from that. Okay, so it's a spectrum. It's representing the entire garden. Exactly. And then when you get the results, do you have to be a rocket scientist to interpret them and to know what amendments, if any, to add? Fortunately, the soil lab will also give you recommendations based on what you want to grow there and what your soil currently has in it. I see. Uh, So it's pretty straightforward. It is. It is. Plug and play, even. How often do you get Soil tested. I mean, might it change from season to season? Absolutely. Every season it'll be different. And that boils down to how many areas do you have to be tested and how how is your garden growing? If you knew last year that you needed such and such and you added that and your garden looks great and it still looks great, well, maybe you wait a couple of years. Okay. I don't know if you mentioned if it was free. It is it, not. It is not free. Okay. It is not. The soil test costs approximately $31. And you would do a different soil test for different parts of your garden because what you want for vegetables is very different than what you want for your lawn or your perennial beds. Interesting. Okay, now that we've gotten the dirty work out of the way, I'm sorry for that pun, uh, let's talk more about what to put in that soil. Uh, Michael Sagrati tweeted us to ask what the best vegetables are to grow in Colorado. Now, you've already talked about some of your favorites this season, but what would you add to the list of veggies that just thrive here. I also realize there are a lot of different climates here. There are. We have a lot of different climates throughout the state and even on the Front Range. The first thing I would always ask is that you think about what do you want to eat? Okay. And then you might think about what can you get a lot of production of? So that's your that's the heart of your question. Onions and garlic always do really well here in Colorado. We have a variety of greens for the cool season are kales and chards, wonderful lettuces, a million different varieties. We also have our warm season vegetables, green beans, corn, 
All the squashes do very well here. Is that true as well in the high country, by the way? The high country is a little more limited. They have obviously cooler temperatures, but they have a really short growing season. Mm. So if you want to grow tomatoes, for instance, you may have to be bringing them in towards the end of the year or starting them really early indoors. Okay, a little bit of help on either end, bookended. Yes. Uh, you say onions and garlics do really well in Colorado. They Why do. are they such a sure bet? Honestly? Yeah. You're I not, don't know. You're not sure? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they just seem to be very successful here. And they're easy for most gardeners. They're not prone to a lot of pests. Ah. They are... Not too particular on needing a lot of water. In fact, they're happier with a little bit less water. Colorado Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthoud. She is answering some of your gardening questions. The next one comes from Stephanie Lindbergh of Centennial. She wants to know how to improve her raspberry production. She says, I have multiple plants, but only get one that flowers and fruits. She says she's tried fertilizing and... Drip irrigation, what suggestions might you have for raspberries? Well, the first thing I would say is go back to your soil test. Ah. Yeah, because you may be fertilizing, but are you fertilizing with what that plant needs? So taking a look at your soil and evaluating it, getting some recommendations back from CSU, and they can be very specific. You can say, I'm growing raspberries, Hmm. and they will tell you what your soil needs for better raspberries. Are raspberries particularly tricky berry? Not particularly, but they are definitely not xeric. And a lot of us here in Colorado tend to water on the xeric side, so not a lot of water. Xeric meaning uh, of this place. Of this place. They like a drier climate. But raspberries like a lot of water. Okay. So if you're not watering enough, oftentimes that's one to two inches per week of water for raspberries when they're fruiting and flowering to get decent production out of them. So you can take a look at your watering also. We heard from at least one Denverite who's battling Japanese beetles, which are wreaking havoc in her garden. Uh, She's tried natural treatments like pheromone traps, milky spores. That's a bacteria uh, to kill the beetle grubs and and nematodes, roundworms. Um, uh, That is, she has also used nematodes, I think, to try to kill the beetles. Right. Yeah, using roundworms to kill them. Okay. But she wonders if these natural treatments really do anything for Japanese beetles. They can be effective. The thing to remember about Japanese beetle is that the timing of your application is critical. So with all insects, it's important to know what is their life cycle. A Japanese beetle starts off as a grub in our lawns, and that grub is actually the most effective place to attack the Japanese beetle. So the nematodes can be quite effective, but they have to be applied at the right time. Okay. How do you know it's the right time? We actually have on the CSU website a, um, a calendar that shows the Japanese beetle life cycle, the approximate time in our calendar that is effective to apply the nematodes. Okay. Uh, again, these roundworms. Uh, and, and so it's a very specific window. Uh, Japanese beetles, they sound like an invasive to me. They are. They're, they were discovered in Colorado in the last about 10 years, but we've seen them more and more on the front range as they're breeding and finding our climate to be attractive. They're here to stay? Unfortunately. Unfortunately, okay. They were able to eradicate the mountain palisade, but they have a very uh, special area there where they were able to limit the 
the general area where they had to attract, trap, and eradicate them. So they, they had a limited geographical area. It's going to be hot today. Maybe it you is. heard 103 in Denver, for instance. A little hot for June. I'm wondering about tactics for dealing with the hot, dry summers uh, also in southern Colorado. I mean, I think certainly of Pueblo in those temperatures. Is it a good idea to just rip out your lawn and put down rocks, especially if you're tight for time or money? There's a time and a place for a lawn, and there's a time and a place for rocks. I like to think about a lawn is that respite we have from the heat. It's that cool green area. And if you think about it, when you walk past a gravel field in the evening after the sun's gone down, you can feel the heat coming off of it. But you won't find that with a lawn. So if you're going to want to be more water-wise with your lawn, there are several options. Give me examples. Well, first thing you could do is if you have a bluegrass lawn, you could let it go dormant in the summer. It will still soak up a lot of heat during the day and not radiate it back out at night. It'll look brown. It won't be very pretty, but it will save you a lot of water. The idea of of letting it lie dormant is simply not watering it? Right. And that's not going to kill it? Not with Kentucky bluegrass. Okay. It will with some of our other lawn grasses. You could also replace it with buffalo grass, which is a native grass in Colorado. It's one of our short, short grass prairie grasses, and it requires significantly less water. It's not nearly as lush as bluegrass, and it won't take the heavy traffic that a bluegrass lawn will. But it's less of that unfriendly heatscape, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. Now, if you are going to go in and put in rocks because you have maintenance issues and you just don't have the time, you might consider planting some good shade trees in there as well to help deflect some of the heat, create some shade on those rocks so they don't soak up so much heat. What are good shade trees? Well, there's a lot of them. I think my favorite would probably be a Kentucky coffee tree. Kentucky coffee tree. Yes. Okay, that does not yield coffee. It does not yield coffee. <laughs> That's too bad. Okay, it was it a twofer in that uh, case. I wish. I wish. It doesn't, but it gives us a lovely filtered shade. It has an unusual shape and a beautiful gold fall color. It tolerates our alkaline soils. It's fairly drought tolerant once it's established, and it takes our wind and snow load. So it's really a great tree for our front range area and even the western slopes. Okay, Kentucky coffee, is that it? Yes. Yeah, here I'm looking at photos of these. Oh, they're beautiful. They are. And they grow tall, I guess. They do. This is a nice shade tree. One more example? How about the bur oak? Yeah. Bur oak is another lovely, large tree. It's going to give you a heavier shade. It's also very drought tolerant and, again, loves our alkaline soils more so than the maples. You know, we all love a maple with its red fall color, but it does not like our soil very well. So picking a tree that is adapted to our climate and our soils is really important if you want to have success. I love this idea, though, that it doesn't have to be either rocks or Kentucky bluegrass. No. There's something in between. There's a lot of gray-green in the middle. (laughs) Well done. Uh, People who haven't gardened much before, you know, might hear all of this, uh, including the soil testing, even though it's pretty straightforward, and feel intimidated about making mistakes, doing the wrong thing. What encouragement do you have for novices? I'd include myself in that. 
Well, I'll tell you a quick story. My cousin once asked me to help her plant some planters with vegetables. She's never grown vegetables before. And we went to the garden center. We picked out the planter. We picked out the soil. We picked out the plants. And I said, what would you like to eat? And so we picked out a salsa garden. Oh, nice. Yeah. And we got everything to the car. We brought it home. We planted it. And as I was about to leave, she looked at me and threw up her hands and said, what if I kill it? I said, well, you might. And that's okay, because we learn how to garden, unfortunately, sometimes by killing things. Mm. We have to try, and a lot of those efforts are going to get rewarded, and some of them we're just going to have to learn from them. Lonnie giving us a license to kill. Well, (laughs) we would hope to give you the information so that you have better success than that. I'm so grateful for your time, and happy eating. Thank you. To you, too. Lonnie Godet of Berthet is a Colorado master gardener and volunteer for CSU Extension. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.